0: Um, so I partook as all of you did. I saw you there. We went um, Black Friday shopping right at 4 a.m. Y'all were there. I saw, yeah, I saw y'all. I know you were there. John, I got you a little gift. You can come up. Um, I had to wait in line for this, and it was very expensive, if I'm being <laughs> honest. Um, but we'd like to say, right, because it's from all of us here at Radius <laughs> Church for you for a little Merry Christmas to John. So I opened this in front yeah, of you everybody? Can, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all, we all chipped in, right? Yeah. Yeah, we bought it for you. Right? But that. Couldn't have gone with black or white. It had to go with straight garnet. I see, I see. Wow. What's that. This is the first time I've had to do this in 11 years. I was going through doing the math, and literally, we started the church in 2003, and so I was in town for the first three years, and then I've been here the last seven, so, and then, you know, COVID year, we would have won that year, last 11 years, anyway. Painful day yesterday, so happy for y'all, sad for me. Very interesting living in this state. If you're new to, to us, we're, we're, we're a little consumed with this game every year, so, so maybe I can explain another time. Hey, if you're new at Radius at this time of year, we do this every year um, and, and have a lot of fun with it. And then we do this. We, there, there's a card on your seat. Uh, we call it Give Hope, and what we do is we pool our resources to try to take care of folks in need in our community. We've been doing this for years. The very first year we did it, we really just wanted to come up with a healthy way around the Christmas time, year-end financially, to pool our money, to get it to folks that were really in need. And so we found some partners that would get that money to folks that were really in need. We weren't real happy with some of the other stuff that was going on, so we we kind of designed our own thing. And through the years, that number, that amount of money has grown and grown and grown and grown to the point where we've diversified a little bit. In the earliest days, we we just trusted whatever we brought in to give hope through actually teachers and administrators and guidance counselors to, to to kids in need in the school system which we love doing we continue to do but we vetted that so that number's this big and then last year we were able to to, to put a bunch of money into our community into places like mission lexington and easy center and and uh the uh, oh, i forgot the name of the one downtown like we've been able to put that money to, to folks that really have needs and then this year we anticipate if we do like we've been doing and that number continues to grow that we'll even be able to use it for some benevolent stuff that we do here at Radius when folks have need in our body or around our body. What we love the most, so we've got community partners, as I mentioned, but we've got partners here at Radius. Maybe you've been through Discovery and you're deciding whether or not to be a partner. What we love the most is when a partner sees a need in their Radius and then we can get in beside something that you see. That's what we do. We're passionate about it. So if you want to get in on it, you can a uh, little, little code to scan on here. It will take you right to it. You can uh, go on the website and a little drop-down for Give Hope. It's a way to give. It goes strictly to folks in need. If you've been at Radius for a while and you've been you've been a giver, so you help take care of the financial needs. Hey, we we thank you. I realize that is a grind, and a lot of us we pull our money together on a monthly basis to pay the bills, to put us in a position to share the gospel with our town. So thank you for that. This little different. Some of y'all get excited about buildings. We got a little fund on there, the Opportunity Fund. If that that kind of turns your crank, we got a couple opportunities in the in, in the wings that we're thinking about. If you'd rather. Put some money in an opportunity fund. Feel free. It's just the time of year where a lot of folks want to figure out where they're going to spend some money on behalf of others. This is a good way to do it. So thank you. So I moved back to South Carolina from Pennsylvania in 1977. Some, I got to take this thing off. I think it's going to burn me or something. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid. i yeah, to keep my mic right. Uh, I moved back to South Carolina from Pennsylvania. I was born here, and we moved up there for a little while. And I was 10 years old. Some of y'all, 70, 1977, you're like, seriously? You were like 10 in 1977? That's a real thing? Yeah, I, I was. I was 10 in 1977. And we moved to Anderson, South Carolina. And my neighbor, Mark Sexton, was a Gamecock fan. And like, I had just got moved in. And before I could like get situated, I, I hadn't really been old enough to have a team yet. He was a Gamecock fan. He started going after My dad got season tickets to the Clemson games. So we, we would go to the Clemson game, watch the Tigers, 77, 78, 79, 80, and, and then me and Mark would go at it. And very, I mean, it took me like six months to figure out I better learn how to boast about the Tigers, right? Anybody, if you're new to this state, this is what we do. And, like, if you're born here, you know what I'm saying. Like, you got something in your pocket all the time. When a Clemson or a South Carolina fan brings something to you, for some of y'all, you're like, y'all are weird. I know, I know, we are, but it's kind of fun. Like, like it just oozes out of us. Last service, there was somebody in the service, smarting off to me, and I, I like, I had something in my pocket. I didn't even have in my notes. I'm like, this is easy. I could go all day. Like, like we can go back and forth because that's just who we are. That's how this thing works in our state. Um, I used to coach the kids when Clemson lost. I used to coach them what to say when they got to school. That's how bad it is. Some of y'all are like, this pastor, man, I don't know about him. <laughs> yeah, well, like, so kids in the room, younger kids in the room, let me coach you. If you're a Clemson fan, I'll get you ready. Here's what you say tomorrow. When you get to school, it's going to be rough. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. It is going to be on. We got one partner here at Radius that has Sandstorm projected off the side of his house with the people doing the white pom-pom. It's projected on his house yesterday. That, that's how bad it is tomorrow. Clemson fans. It's going to be rough. So this is what you say, kids. You say, I've forgotten how this feels. You've been doing this for eight years straight. I say <laughs> something like that. They'll be like, it's seven years. I'm like, you know we would have killed y'all the COVID year. Come on now. Like you just gotta keep working. Like you gotta get in there skill. That's how it works. Like we go back and forth. You can say something like, I'm glad you won. This thing was getting boring. But like you can do <laughs> stuff like that. Or if if you're a Clemson fan, the go-to is always like the all-time record. Like, when I was a kid, and nobody knows what it is, so it never really worked. I felt really smart when I'd bring it out. Like, I'd bring out the all-time record, and, and Gamecock or Clemson fans were like, what is he talking about? I'm like, well, it's going to take you a long time to get it anyway. You, you can nerd out on it, and then you look kind of weird, so so don't go, don't go that route. In our culture, uh, this part of fun, in a small state where there's only two schools, like, like Alabama, and we're not quite to that level, but have a lot of fun in our state, and we're kind of, like, the boasting is, you know, like it can get out of control, but it can really be healthy and fun. And so we, we make fun of each other on a regular basis. I want to, like, propose to you that me and you, mankind was built to boast. Like, we were made to do this from the, from the get. As a matter of fact, you can imagine Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Adam looking over at the rhinos and going, baby, look at that rhino. How you like that? We've been managing this garden. Look at that rhino. Look at that banana tree. Look at the, look at the size of the bunches of bananas on that tree. Right? Cheryl one time texted me. She wanted a bunch of bananas. So I brought home like 20. She's like, a bunch. It's like just one. Like, anyway, it <laughs> does do with anything. But like, like, like you, you, You're boasting on what's going on in the garden that you're managing. But Adam and Eve, what are they really boasting in? But they're boasting in the Creator, the one that made bananas and the one that made the peaches and the one that made the rhinos. There's this healthy, like, pride in the Creator in the garden. And then we call it the fall when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And when they sinned, work became hard. Ladies, you can say amen to this. And childbirth became hard. There you go. And then... Uh, And it's really strange that in the garden we were able to boast in the creator, and then when when the fall happened, now we're boasting in our hard work, toiling the soil, or in our families, the children that we labored, pun intended, to bring into this world. And all of a sudden there's this Division between mankind, because mankind is no longer just focused on boasting on the living God who created it all. boasting on their own creation and their own work. And uh, it's got this level of destruction. We've been in the book of Galatians for a while, and this is our very last Sunday. So I'm going to read to you these, these last verses that... That Paul pens, and, and in this particular case, he literally pens them. So, if you can imagine, I don't know if you know how the Bible works, but the second part of the Bible we call it the New Testament. It's really old, right? Like it's two thousand years old. So, the Old Testament is just older. So, we call it the Old Testament. Is that confusing? Anyway, like so, like the New Testament's got multiple books in it, and uh, most of them are written as letters to individual churches. So this book of Galatians is written to a few churches in the area called Galatia. So there's four churches there, most likely. And they pass this letter around and everybody could read it. So this guy named Paul, we call him an apostle. He writes them a letter. He's in the town called Antioch. And so you can imagine him up in his room with the scroll. And he's probably dictating this letter. To the Galatians. And, and he's got a friend there that is a better writer than him, and he's, he's writing out this letter, and, and it's dictated, and it's all the way down the scroll. And you can imagine at the end of the letter, Paul's like, how much, how much room do you got left on that scroll? Right? Like, this isn't like your iPad, right? Like, this is like a piece of parchment. This, ain't even, this isn't even lined paper. Some of y'all don't know what lined paper is, it's what we used to use when I went to school. But like, like this is a parchment, and, and they're writing on it, and Paul's like, give me that pen. And dips it in the ink, and he's he says, I'm going to write it myself. As a matter of fact, in the passage in, in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. A lot of be- people believe that Paul had some sort of eye issue, and so he wrote really large because he couldn't see well. And so these last paragraphs, he's going to write with his own hand, and I imagine fill up a huge part of that parchment. like All of it's written really neatly by whoever he's dictating to, and then you got this big, large writing at the end where Paul just wants to emphasize what he's got to say. Here's what he writes. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. Do you hear it in there? Boast. What do they want to boast about? They want to boast about themselves. They want you to be their disciples so that they can boast about themselves. And so in those very first... Verses after Paul takes the pen and lets them know that he's taking the pen. He wants to get some clarity for us. Like, people are built to boast. And at the very beginning, we were built to boast in the living God. And after the fall, we've been built to boast about ourselves. And he says of these folks who have brought in this false teaching that all they're trying to do is boast about themselves. Um. There's an interesting line. NLT takes this this one verse and adds to it. It says in verse uh, 12, it says, They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. Uh, Other translations, which are actually more accurate, say that that they don't want to be persecuted for the cross. And it just says the cross. NLT, I think, helps us understand it better. says that they don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. Because there's been folks in the past that will die for the icon of the cross, right? There have been wars fought over the icon of the cross. But he says, hey, they don't want to be persecuted for what the cross can do, that it alone can save, that it's got power above all mankind. And so he lays this thing out, and he puts them side by side, and it is baffled mankind ever since. I want to read you a story that Jesus told. It's one when I heard it as a young man bugged the heck out of me. I imagine it's going to bug you, and that's my purpose for reading it. So let's try it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning, probably 6 a.m., probably when work day started for them, to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people standing around doing nothing and he hired them, telling them that he would pay whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw more people uh, standing around. Why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one's hired us. And the landowner told them to go get out And joined the others in the vineyard. Verse 8. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. Can't tell you in that culture how good that would have been. So we talk about week to week. We talk about month to month paychecks and how we work our finances. For them, it was day to day. And you get paid at the end of the day, and you're trying to provide your family. You're going to go to the marketplace and try to buy enough for your family to eat at the end of the day. So they got a full day's wage. These 11th-hour workers that had only been there for an hour, they had to been partying for the pay that they got. When those hired first came to get their pay, they'd been there all 12 hours, they assumed they would receive more. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. And they were, received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat and walked uphill two ways in the snow. Right? Like, you know how you tell the story when you want some more? <coughs> Barefoot. <laughs> Verse 13, he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay the last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want to with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? I don't know if you could pay attention to all that reading, but if you did, it probably bothered you. If it didn't bother you, I need to find a way to make it bother you. He's saying that the folks that only worked one hour got paid the same as the folks that worked all day. I keep thinking of ones in the middle like that worked like 6 hours and wonder what they were pro- how they processed. Were they thankful because they they got a whole day's wage or were they jealous because the folks only worked an hour got a full day's wage? And Jesus lays a story out there to teach us what the book of Galatians is laying out for us teach us this the story of grace and our perspective on our relationship with God. Let me make it a little bit more personal. So you telling me that if I wait to have sex until I'm married and then have it with my wife and only with one woman for my entire life, like, like I'm gonna get paid the same as somebody who gave into that temptation over and over and over until the end. Let me make it more personal again. Like, like, so you're telling me that I've been generous with my finances. Hear, hear my language a little bit. Well, my finances over the course of a lifetime, you're telling me that at the end of this life, somebody who hadn't shared nothing but believe at the last minute, you telling me that I'm on equal playing field with them? Am I bothered yet? Like, do I need to keep going? Keep going. I, mean, well, I can go for a while. <laughs> you telling me? I, mean, like, like, I spent all this time in this book in the Bible, and this dude's going to heaven. He don't know John three sixteen. <laughs> What in the world? And we could go on and on and on because we feel like we're owed something. I'll read you a quote. is by a guy named Linsky. The more we do, the more we earn, the more God owes us. Ugh, it feels a little funny when it comes out like that, doesn't it? Like the story seemed hard to read, and you're like, Jesus, what are you writing? And then when you actually say, the more God owes me, then all of a sudden, if you've known him for a little while, that feels that feels really awkward, too. Let me, let me put that story that I just read in context. If you were to read it in Matthew, that's Matthew chapter 20. If you were to re- read Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is, he's challenged uh, a, a variety of people, and, and uh, particularly this rich man, and he's told him to sell everything and follow him. And so Peter comes back with this attitude, uh, (laughs) the more we do, the more we earn, the more God owes us. And he says this, Peter says these exact words, we've given up everything, what will we get? (laughs) Bold. Like we've given up everything, what will we get? And Jesus, gracious in his answer, he says, All of you have sacrificed, and he goes through a list, homes and families, and he goes through like this deep list. He says, We'll receive a hundred times as much. I used to read that and weep, like, okay, so my sacrifices mean something. But then he tells this story right after it Wait a minute, I thought you said my sacrifices mean something, right? Like, you said, you said a hundred times, and now, dude, did. Believes at the last minute, gets the same? What, what's, what's he saying? He's saying, man, there ain't nothing to boast in but the master's generosity. And so the master's going to give you 100 times what you sacrifice? This ain't about equality. He overwhelms us with grace. When we meet the living God, and even now, like, as we meet him, as we walk through, he overwhelms us with Grace which changes our attitude. If you started at 6 a.m. and you've been working all all day long, praise God, you got to serve the master for 12 hours because of who he is. You got to live by his principles, which probably actually made your 12 hours better than the 11 hours of the other guy who didn't work. You ought to have the same attitude as the guy who only worked one hour, right, who's so thankful to receive the grace of God. You actually got to serve the master by his design all those years. so it's really about him it's really about the glory of the master and his generosity to all those folks that were lost in the marketplace he just happened to find you at 6 a.m you can't find him he found you and he found one some at noon and some at 3 p.m and he got some at the very last minute When we learn to rest in that and we recognize, like we talked last week, that this is a spiritual family, then we're happy. We're happy when the child gets baptized and we anticipate that he might walk with the Lord his entire life. And we're happy when he finds somebody at the very end of life. They've been a knucklehead the whole life and he grabs that that lady at the end of her life. We celebrate because it's about what he did. None of us belong there. We were all lost. Which makes us, when one of us is struggling, want to get our shoulder on one another's burdens. That's how the spiritual family of God's supposed to work. We want to get our shoulder on somebody else's burdens, based on the earlier parts of this chapter. When somebody goes in the ditch, we want to rescue them. Not out of arrogance. We'll even confront our brother or sister in Christ to try to help them get out of the ditch. Not because we feel like we're better than them, but because this is so good. I mean, it's easy. Because it's good and it's healthy and it's restful to be working for the master and we want to bring them back for those of us that are getting a little older in the room i read this uh i actually heard about this hockey player that in his 50s he was just a stud so he played always in his 50s and they interviewed him said what do you do different in the 50s that you did when you were in your 20s he said it's all about the assist which i thought was really cool so here at radius those of us that helped start this thing we've been here for a while now it's time for us to Make some assists. The next generation is coming along. We want to pass the puck to them so that they can score because this is not about us. It's about the master and what he wants to accomplish in this particular geography. Jerry Bridges writes a book called Transforming Grace. You want to read a great book on grace? Especially if you've grown up and uh, downloaded the law. That's what you were taught at church, and so it's performance based. Uh, this would be a great one to read, but I'll just read you a quick quote. He says, he's telling us that God's reward is out of all proportion to our service and sacrifice. A hundred times as much. So, man, stop worrying about the rankings. Stop, stop worrying about how we compare and compete with other people in this world. It's beyond any service or sacrifice that you could ever imagine. He is telling us that in the kingdom of heaven, God's reward system is based not on merit, but on grace. Most of the world does not want that gospel. And so every other religion in the world is based on merit and achievement. The non-religious systems are based on merit and achievement. And you and I, if we believe in Jesus, it is very easy to get sucked back into that competition. So we're always looking for somebody that doesn't measure up quite as much as we do. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. As for me, Paul says, May I never boast about anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he talking about the Gamecocks and the Tigers here? He ain't worried about the Gamecocks and the Tigers and us having some fun with the Gamecocks and Tigers. He's talking about your core. Like, what do you boast about at your core? Who are you? Some folks will get all jacked up and a little legalistic, and they'll get worried about us talking smack about the game. Like, you're just missing the point. You're doing exactly the opposite of what he's teaching here. He's saying, I never boast about anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying at the core, I imagine Paul had a good time when Jerusalem paid Antioch, right? Had a good time with that whole situation. But at his core, he knew who he was and he knew what mattered. And that's what that he was saved by grace. He says, because of that cross, my interest in the world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether I've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. Amazing lines. So all of a sudden, after being born into this world and pretty much from the time I could think and relate, I'm looking for affirmation. If you were born into a good home, you probably got some at your house, some encouragement from your parents. You wanted your parents' affirmation. You wanted them to say that you were a great kid, right? And it doesn't take too long where you're, you're seeking other people's affirmation. You're thinking, hoping other people around you think that you're a great kid. As a matter of fact, a lot of us will weed out anybody who doesn't think we're a great kid. We don't want to hear anybody that doesn't think we're a great kid. Life's all about being affirmed and belonging and feeling like we fit. And one of the ways we do that is finding people that are lesser than us, and we compare ourselves to try to hold ourselves up. When it's healthy, it's like I'm proud of my mom, and she's proud of me, or I'm proud of my, my grandfather, and he's proud of me. And It's a little healthier, but it's all about, like, do I belong? Do I fit? Who am I, in essence? it's never really completely solved because even when your mama listens to you sing and she says you're great, there's some doubt in your mind. And for some of y'all, there should be doubt, right? Like watch American Idol a couple times, right? Like, like when Clemson fans or the Carolina fans were, were boasting, like were, we're trying to be somebody, like even though like, like we won this year, we're afraid next year we might lose. There's this insecurity even in all of the affirmation that we produce one way or another. And Jesus, through Paul, presents this to us. He says, because of the cross, my interest in the world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. I don't have to live seeking that affirmation anymore. I'm affirmed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Meaning, you, because of his death on the cross, can stand before the Father as righteous. You belong. In the family of God, you can climb up on his lap and look up in his eyes. You can put your arm around him. You belong with the holy God. You talk about some affirmation. You are a child of the Father and nobody can take that away from you. So he says that all he can do is boast in the cross of Christ. How do you do that? Billy Graham uh, in 1955, got invited to preach at Cambridge. It's a uh, uh, Christian school. Was particularly then in 1955 in, in England, and would have had the smartest people in the world. C.S. Lewis was a professor there. If you if you know people, C.S. Lewis, pretty bright guy, and there were some some other really bright guys. So so Billy Graham said he's really nervous. They took four nights, and they split the students. Eight thousand students, and they put two thousand. Students per night would hear him preach. So the first three nights, he said he was just trying to not sound stupid. <laughs> Anybody else? I mean, he's from North Carolina, and you're, you're at Cambridge. It'd be pretty easy to sound stupid. So he's working hard. He says he's trying to quote people. He's working hard. And he got so frustrated. By the third night, he and his team, they prayed and decided what to do tonight, the next night. And he said, man, I'm going back to who I am. I'm just going to preach the blood of Christ. And so they said, as, as he preached, that some of the professors became super uncomfortable. Billy Graham, in a simple way, direct way, and powerful way, just talked about the blood from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so for some of the intellectuals, they were, they were frustrated, thought that he was being crude and a little obscene even. They were offended by the cross, as it's supposed to. And then 400 kids came forward and gave their life to Christ. That night, And they were shocked by the simplicity of the gospel and the power of the blood. So I thought, as we wrap up Galatians, it might be good to just boast in the cross. See, when you boast in the cross, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Like you're boasting in a death. If you can't do that with humility, you probably don't get it. Like we can smack talk about the Tigers and the Gamecocks all day. We do that with a little swagger. This is a humble swagger. When you talk about the cross, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They're going to be expelled from the garden. And what does God do? He sheds blood, takes the life of a couple animals, skins them, and clothes Adam and Eve because now they know that they're naked. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to God. Abel's worked in his, I mean, Cain's worked in his garden. He's got massive pumpkins and watermelon, and he's got these massive fruits and vegetables that he's bringing to God. And, and Abel brings a blood sacrifice. You remember this? God chastises Cain, not for his hard work, but that he didn't listen, that God requires blood. Genesis chapter 4. Skip to the second book of the Old Testament. Exodus The people of Israel are enslaved to the Egyptians. God's going to set them free. And what does he have them do? Some kill a lamb, take the blood, and put it over the doorpost. Put it over the door and on the sides of the door. And what happens? I'll read it to you. Exodus chapter 12. But the blood, put the blood on the doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood... I'll pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you, and I'll strike the land of Egypt. Hebrews chapter 9 kind of captures what happened throughout the whole Old Testament. Verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Verse 22, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son to forgive our sins. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. United with Christ Jesus. We're sitting beside each other i got my arm around him. I'm united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. All proud of self. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." You and I, if you believe in Jesus, we worship a bloody lamb. Re-revelation. He comes on the scene as a bloodied lamb. You can imagine his white coat covered with blood, and these great creatures fall on their face and worship him for his holiness. The power comes out of the humble sacrifice on the cross, and his blood spilt. Matthew chapter 26 verse 27 and 28 it's right before Jesus is going to go to the cross he says he took up he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it and he gave it to them and he said each of you drink it and this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many so you know what we do to boast in the cross every sunday We walk up and we take this bread and juice and we proclaim the name of Jesus till he comes because of what he did on our behalf. Ain't no self-boasting going on. We boast in a bloody mess, totally counterintuitive to boast in a death. But we know because we're here on Sunday. We meet on Sundays on purpose. Because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. So we boast in the bloody mess that led to life on Sunday. We do it over and over and over. And every time you take this cup, you proclaim that you couldn't do it. That you got nothing to boast about. Except for the cross. Jesus hung there. He said seven things as he hung on the cross. As he hung there. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth according to scriptures. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's crazy. Blood trickling out of his hands and his feet at this point. His back oozing from the beating that he's taken earlier. He looks out at the people and he's like, Father, here I am. This is the plan. I'm on the cross. My blood's being shed. But don't forget, we came here to save them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think it's particularly beautiful. Mom's in the room. Jesus hanging on the cross, looks down, sees his mom in the crowd. You remember this? He calls her woman. I never, I never called my mom a woman, but uh, <laughs> he says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at John, who's standing beside him, and he says, behold your mother. He's like, taking care of his mama while he's hanging on the cross. Tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about our Savior. Kids, I'll tell you a little bit about how you ought to view your parents. He's been hanging there a while, and there's this great cry that comes out of it. I can only imagine him yelling it because it seems to come out of the deepest of pain. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No longer referring to him as father or as daddy, but referring to him as the judge. And as he hangs there, like we get consumed with all the blood because that's what we know. We know the pain, but lots of men have died on the cross. Jesus hangs there. He cries out to the Father as he takes on the wrath of the omnipotent God. All power focused on him in a negative way. Why? Because you're sin. You're the sin, deserve the wrath of God and Jesus as a sacrifice. As he bleeds physically, he bleeds spiritually as the Father pours out his wrath on him. And he cries out in pain and yet stays the course. Because you're on his mind. I love that he asks for something to drink. He says, I'm thirsty. Somebody brings him something to drink. It's as if he wanted to wet his lips. You ever need to wet your lips to say what you really want to say? And then he says, it is finished. Dad, here we are. We came here to get this thing done. We got it done. We did it. We, we paid the price for their sins so that they could rest in relationship with us, the Trinity. His final words on the cross, he says, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. It actually, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a great line. Like, they can't kill me, really. I'm the God man, so I'm going to die right here because I need to die. I need to shed my blood and die on their behalf. And then he dies. Anybody count them? Did I miss one? I did it on purpose. I named six of them. Second thing Jesus said while I was on the cross, this dude in the very last hour of his life looks at him, hanging right beside him, and proclaims his belief in Jesus. You remember that? What's Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's all about the generosity of God. So whether you believed when you were six years old like I did, or whether you believe at the very last. Hey, hey I ain't no promises there's going to be a very last, so don't, don't get confused on this. Like, it's not a strategy. But... His grace is sufficient through and through. And those of us that have believed, we sit here in unison as a group of people that were lost but now are saved and we celebrate. In fact, we boast in the cross to Christ. Praise God. We're going to sing together a little bit. We're going to sing about the name of Jesus. It ought to roll off your tongue if you know him. Like If if it's not there today, ask him to help you get it where you're saying his name with joy for the work that he did on the cross. And you have the opportunity to come up and take this bread and juice. I would encourage you to confess your sin before you come. Is that going to screw something up? Is is the juice going to burn your lips if you don't? No, no, there's there's no tricks to it like that. But it's just an insult for you to recognize the greatness of this event and then come up here and take it without acknowledging what's going on in your life because he paid for all that sin. So you confess it, and then you come up in it like it's this proclamation. We're boasting in the cross of Christ. Let's pray together.